Greetings, family. We're reading from a 1953 talk that Bill W. gave about the variations in the 12 shift and the 12 traditions. Extremely interesting. Let's pray. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Bill W. Good morning, folks. I came in here rather unprepared. I asked on the way in what I was going to talk about. And I see the title is a rather formidable one. Variations in the 12 shifts and the 12 traditions. So I thought I would spin a little yarn to you about the original variations, especially in the steps and the hassles we had about them. And then maybe philosophize a little bit on this question of whether this program of ours is frozen as solid as an ice cube or whether there is any elasticity in it or not. Whether we are going to get into the business of insisting upon conformity, whether we are going to get into the business of creating an authority that says these steps and traditions have to be this way. That is the serious underlining question that this topic involves. As you know, in the first four years of AA, we had a word-of-mouth program, and the principles that we used in this word-of-mouth program were abstracted from certain practices of the old Oxford group, which some of early, us early members were brought into contact. As a good many of you, we retained some of the Oxford group principles in and quite as emphatically rejected others. We owe those people a double debt of gratitude because we learned from them what to do and what not to do. We also picked up over their objectives at the time certain medical ideas about alcoholism, its fatality, its hopelessness, the fact that no matter how capable we have been in getting that way, that once we had got that way, we were irresponsible and sick. That idea was channeled into us by good old Dr. Silksworth, and until we began to make use of that idea, the results were absolutely nil. So after a year or two of AA, before the group had any name, and before the 12 steps were written, our word-of-mouth program could be summoned up in a half a dozen steps, which in the vernacular of the time ran like this. You admit that you're drunk and that you're hopeless. The admission is up to you, brother. You have to figure it out. That was the substance of what now is step one in the early days. Then you get honest with yourself. Self-overhauling. Well, the religionists call that an examination of the conscience. The Oxford groupers call it something else, but we just call it getting honest with yourself as you never had been. Then you come along to the next step in the old word-of-mouth program, and that was to be sure you got honest with yourself and to humble yourself enough so you could get this program. You better sit down and, in confidence, get thoroughly honest with somebody else. We already begun to run in that phrase, in confidence. Although it doesn't always work that way, it did create terrific havoc in the Oxford group, this indiscriminate sharing of intimate things. At any rate, the idea was you sat down with somebody in whom you had confidence and in confidence you described what you could see of your own personality defects, 
or your sins or your maladjustments or whatever you prefer to call them. That was the next step. Then it was realized that in your alcoholic career, you got into a bad relationship with a lot of people, had hurt them. Who were these people? Let's go see them and straighten things out, or at least promise to do so. That was the next step. Then the following step was the idea of working with others without the usual demands of prestige or money. And then, rather generally in the old days, because so many were in fear of being God-bitten, we would sort of sneak it up on the, on the boys that, well, you can't really make this program stick. And the experience of most of us, anyway, unless you depend on some higher power, call it God if you wish, call it the group if you wish, but it won't work very well without that. That was the substance of those steps. You admitted you were drunk. You got honest with yourself. You got honest with somebody else. You made restitution for the harms you've done. You work with other people without demand for rewards. You depend upon whatever God you thought there was, and you prayed for him for help to carry this thing. That was the thing in a nutshell. Up to that time, the big book came out. Anybody who thinks that those of us who prepared that book were people running around glowing with inspiration and clothed in white robes is very, very much mistaken. I won't deny that we were very high and enthusiastic and excited, and certainly we must have been somewhat inspired, but in other respects, we acted like hell. We had a terrible time about money. We had a terrible time about what would go into the big book, and with some difficulty, I got myself appointed as the final umpire of what went in it. I was not really the author of that book. I was just the umpire of it. At any rate, after a couple of chapters were done and had been hassled through by passing them around at a little meeting here in New York and shipping them out to Akron, it became very apparent that the principles on which these things operated had to be stated. I remember lying in bed one night over in Clinton Street, and I was in an awful bad mood. You see, we were eating over there on the money that the drunks were raising on account of peddling stocks to them in a book not yet written. And they were, weren't getting up the money, and the eating outlook was very bad that night. Moreover, I was suffering from an imaginary ulcer attack, plus a couple of friends in New York who strenuously objected to this. That or the other thing had just been in to take me over the jumps, and I felt in a mood which could be mildly described as that of a frantic serenity. I remember having a tablet of yellow paper there, and I said, God, this book has to go on. How we will ever finish it, I don't know. Then as snow, I had no confidence whatever in my writing, but it did occur to me that this word-of-mouth program was not quite, quite specific and definite enough for the distant reader. If you could buttonhole a drunk and put it up to him by word-of-mouth very well, but we had begun to dream that this book might carry the message to people in distant places and on the principle of the book fortified by a little correspondence or an occasional traveler dropping by. New groups might be formed. And knowing the tendency of the drunk to rationalize, we felt that the chunks of truth in the sixth step of the word of mouth program were too big that you have to break it up in smaller pieces so the son of a gun couldn't duck any essential point. 
and that could form the backbone for the next two or three chapters of the book, where you explain specifically the applications that experience has suggested. So I commenced to write out the steps, and they were done. To my surprise, and despite my rotten state of mind, rather quickly, it was only when I numbered them that I found that there were 12 of them, and I thought, well, that's kind of happy thought. I meant 12, you know. It's a nice number, both in numerology and religion. There were 12 apostles and all that. That's all I thought about that. Then, on looking it over, I found that we had introduced the subject of God way up the line there in the third step, instead of sneaking in in the tail end. Why it was put up there, I still don't know, but it was. Well, when those 12 steps were presented to the meeting in New York, all hell broke loose. I had committed heresy. Why did we have to have 12 says when six were just as good? In other words, my sin was that I had varied the six steps of the AA program now into 12. <clears throat> we had a big hassle over those 12 steps, whether they ought to be 12 or six. And out of that, hassling came one great big 10 strike. You'll remember, I had a very sudden religious experience. In those days, I was more pious than I am now. I use the word God very freely. We had some people who, however, didn't agree with that, our agnostic contingent. There was a bunch of fellows around who said, well, we should write a book more or less along psychology lines and get these drunks sucked in here and then sink the God idea up on them afterwards. They didn't want any mention of God in the book at all. I had these 12 steps pretty much stock up with the word God. But as a result of an awful lot of hassling, we got around to the idea of the higher power or God, as you understand it. And that was no invention of mine. That just came out of a lot of rowing about this thing. So that's what the, that's the way the 12 steps originated. And as I point out, there were tremendous variations, not in principle, but in the number and the manner of stating the original word of mouth program. Time went by, and to our immense surprise, Jesus came in, and they said, Why, these 12 steps are in principle exactly like our Ignatius ex exercise for a retreat. Moreover, they st stated in the same order. As more time passed, psychiatrists looked it over, and although they had some fault to find with it, they said, Well, this stuff isn't half bad, and at any rate, it's working. And that was the beginning of the religious and medical influence of these steps, which have since proved to be common denominators to so many of us, and indeed, to so many in the outside world. There is always a tendency in every society which arrives at basic principles for that society to harden these principles and to get people to conform to them, to say, you must conform or you can't be a member. So after a few years had gone, by, we began to have membership rules all over AA. And the membership rule had two broads designed. One was to eliminate undesirable members. I mean, alcoholic with complications, mental complications, romantic complications, and so on. We just wanted pure and respectable alcoholics. We were terribly unfair to people who might issue from jails or have queer things that matter with them. That was one object of the membership rules, but the other object of a lot of the membership rules that the group had was to force conformity to those 12 steps 
In other words, it would be rules like this. To be an AA member, you must have done all of the 12 steps or you must agree with the 12 steps. Well, of course, long experience now tells us that there shouldn't be any must in AA. In fact, happily, the original suggestion was a suggestion only, 12 suggested steps. So today we say, well, this sums up our experience, and the more you do with these, the better off you're going to be. But folks, it's mince, apple, or plum. It's up to you, really. It's amazing how in distant lands, this same pioneering story is being reenacted. Some years ago, the 12 steps came to the attention of a Swede who could read English or had the friend that could, and he'd been a drunk, then turned into a social worker among alcoholics for the government. I believe, and somehow, he'd been able to stay sober just on the 12 steps. So he takes a look at this program, and he thinks that we don't need 12 steps. His idea was that you need only seven. So in Sweden today, they have seven steps. Do you think that we should write these suites and say you can't belong to our college Namas unless you print those 12 steps the way we got them? No, they are merely going through the old pioneering process that we went through, and we all know how they'll come out. I have a very amusing example of this variation from some years ago. It was wartime, and a lot of merchant marine sailors came into New York, and an awful lot of them were drunks. We had a really friendly psychiatrist working down among them, and he tried selling them straight AA. But sailors are a class of people who are kind of a law unto themselves, you know. They feel different, their occupation is different, and a great many of them seem to be in fear of being God-bitten. So when the psychiatrist said, well, boys, why don't you get some of uh, this AA stuff? I'll explain to you what alcoholism is, but they're there's your real recovery over an AA. They're all shook their heads and said, Nix, we don't want no religion. Well, said the psychiatrist very wisely, what do you want? They said, we want a club. We want to explain to each other what alcoholism is, and we want to help each other. So, okay, they had themselves a club room, and they explained to each other what alcoholism was, and they helped each other for a whole year and at the end of the year, they were all drunk. Finally, some of them began to take off those sailor uniforms and sneak over into AA meetings and unaccountably got sober. And they came back and infected the rest of the sailors in the club with just a little bit of AA. So finally, they took over the old 24th Street Club down there with the same special help. And for a time, that was known as the Seamen's Club. They weren't really AA, they were just kind of in, on the fringes. But of course, by this time, some of them had turned into genuine AAs. And then the question became, what kind of a little pamphlet can we fix up here that we can pass around to all the fellows on shipboard all over the world to show them there's a way out? Well, one of the sailors was commissioned to do a pamphlet. And one morning he appeared up here in the office he was actually shaking, and there were tears in his eyes. And he said, i just been catching hell on this pamphlet. Now I know these sailor men, they ain't going to take them 12 steps the way they were written in the book. That's too tough. We got to sneak up on them a little bit with this program, he told me. 
I rewrote these 12 steps with the purpose of this pamphlet. I don't think I changed any of the principles, but Gee, he said, I've been catching the devil all around. Now, what I want to know is, is if I got permission to do this and have I committed any terrible heresy? So I looked at his draft of the 12 steps, which he had shrunk down to six, and those six steps that he had written exactly correspond with that old word-of-mouth program. That's my experience with variations on the steps and, of course, on the traditions. We've gone up and down like a window shade, and we must always remember, too, in connection with variations on the traditions, that there is one of these traditions that really guarantees every AA group the absolute right to violate all of them if they wish to. We say here, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. And you must remember that these are suggested traditions. When we say each group is autonomous, that means in effect that it has a right to be wrong from the viewpoint to the rest of you. My feeling is that the more we insist on strict conformity with these steps and traditions, the more resistance against them we create. But if these steps and traditions do reflect accurately what our experience is, the alcoholic, no matter whether he be Swedish, Hindu, Chinese, or what, will eventually adopt the principles that produce the best results for him and his group. And if these are correctly stated, he will adopt these. And if any improvements are to come, well, who knows? We may get them from anyone. And that was the article. Amen. The article written in 1953. A little history on the intelligence of Bill W. and the common sense certainly is rewarding and and hits the heart, his writings, just amazing writings. Cool, calm, and collected. Cool hand Luke. Thank you so much for coming down here and listening to this. 1953, the variations of the steps and the traditions.